And again, I, I think in our culture we have such a trouble with the depravity of man concept. In the church we have trouble with the depravity of man. But it doesn't take long to notice it's there. What's interesting, if you go into Second um, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, you, you have the passage that talks about the depravity of man in the end of time, so, so you're aware that it, it takes place. And he says, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why would there be times of difficulty? Because we're people who don't acknowledge what's wrong anymore. And so the wrong begins to destroy us. Because there's no way that being wrong is going to be useful. So when we start accepting wrong, we redefine things. We redefine love, we redefine gender, we redefine God, we redefine... When we do that, we lose something. Um, I'm going to read it to you in the Weiss, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. It says, and the reason is, is because the Weiss, again, gives you this little window that's a little different. It says, this be constantly knowing. That's really what that word at the beginning of that talks about. Be constantly knowing this. When I see that in the Bible, it's like, okay, you know what I have to do? Somehow I have to remind myself of this. Because there's a reason why I'm supposed to be constantly doing it, not just do it. There's a lot of things where I'd like to have them done right now. That's done. And the project over here. But what... Paul is telling Timothy here, be constantly reminding yourself of this. And I think for the church, it's important that we do that. Be constantly knowing that in the last days, this is the Weiss translation, difficult times will set in. And then it says, why? For men shall be fond of themselves. The, the translation you're used to reading is lovers of themselves. But this is expanded, this is fond. Fond of themselves, fond of money. Swaggers, haughty, revilers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Somehow, see, this stuff's going to be found okay. That's why there's going to be trouble. Well, you'll read the list. You know, and really, the unfortunate thing sometimes is, Sometimes the church, we blend in more than contrast, but we're not out there trying to contrast and say you're evil people. We're the evil people too. We're, but we don't live this way. We don't accept life this way because nobody can be fulfilled, nobody can be happy if this is how they live. And if we care about somebody, we, we don't accept that lifestyle. It, without natural affection, implacable, slanderous, lacking self-control, savage, haters of what is good, betrayers, headstrong, besotted with pride, a lot of words that we don't even use anymore, fond of pleasure rather than having an affection for God, having a mere outward semblance of piety toward God, but denying the power of the same. See, now, this ties into what Jesus was saying. Because Jesus was saying, it, when we left, we were talking about, you know, the, the, the one who has poverty of spirit. And, and realizing that we're sinful people. Realizing that we're depraved. And what's happening here is, is Tony saying, look, in the end times, people aren't going to be reading Matthew 5 anymore and applying it. They're not going to do that. They're, they're going to not be depraved in their own minds. They're going to be people 
who deny the very power of God. They're going to give a semblance that they have the power of God, but they don't. They're going to look like it. Uh, you know, that was going on in Jesus' time here. Matthew, it was all the religious groups that were looking like they were doing what they should do. This is Paul, though, talking about it in Timothy. So we, we see that, yes, this theme carries. It's, it's the idea to understand that these things are things that are barometers in our life. It's hard for us to, to understand sometimes exactly what's being said because we don't really evaluate our lives based on some of these things. If I were to ask any of you, you know, does money control you? You'd say, no. I, one, I did a survey once at a men's retreat, and survey's a strong word. I asked people some questions and recorded it in my brain. So that's not really a survey. But, and I would ask, like, you know, are you greedy? No. I didn't find one guy that was greedy. I thought, well, why is that in the Bible? I, I don't really find people that agree. Or did we redefine it wrong? Is that a sin that is no longer round? Or can I still be greedy? As a believer, as one who understands my depression, I, can I be greedy and just redefine it so I'm not? How cultural is the word greed? I don't know. I'm asking the questions. Because I was just wondering, I'd like to find somebody that I talked to that said, yes, I'm greedy, but I didn't find one. And I guess if you did say, yes, you're greedy, I'm going to say you're not doing anything about it. I mean, that would be my next question, so nobody wants to tell me that anyway. So I'm wondering where I'm going with this whole thing. Because I'm thinking, I don't know, it's listed as one of those weird things. Then it's not that weird. We all know it's wrong. But we're not... We're not guilty of it ever. Maybe I'm guilty of it. Maybe I need to look at the Bible again and see what role money plays. Maybe, maybe I am. Maybe I like blaming culture for things so I can just answer to God within the context of what's going on in our culture. We'll let him decide that. When you look at Philippians 1, you see Paul saying, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm alive in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. You know, I, I got it, man. I understand. I, I actually win if I go forward with being in that room and doing what I'm supposed to. Uh, one of the signs, Philippians 2.21, they seek their own interests. See, what happens is the people who don't understand this keep seeking their own interests for themselves. That's not how God designed us. He designed us, if we're going to be fulfilled... Here's the ideal, and, and this is where we all fall short, but here's still the ideal. The ideal is that we're in the room, the door's shut, and, and we're committed to showing the world who Jesus is through everything that happens in our life, every circumstance, with our money, with our time, with our efforts. That's the room we're in. And so no matter what happens in our life, that's what we're doing. We're, we're showing the world who God is through that and every circumstance of life then that comes to us, we say, oh, God, thank you. Look at this circumstance. We get to show the world who you are through. Now, the other hand is to think, well, God, I don't want to suffer, and I don't want to be uncomfortable. I understand that. Who does? Who stands up and says, let me suffer? I want to suffer. This is fun. Nobody does that. But the world will open your eyes. is full of suffering. See, the, the whole idea, before we can fix the problem, we have to understand it and actually let the problem affect us. 
And you might say, well, I, I don't want to let it affect us. No, that's what we as Americans are really good at, is pushing that thing out of the way. So it doesn't affect our daily life. Now, Timothy, here's what you do to a culture that doesn't get it. Preach the word. Open the Bible and read it. Do that. That's how we solve the problem. So I just want us always to be dedicated to the Bible. I want you personally to be dedicated to the Bible. Be, be dedicated to it. Know what it says. Read it. Listen to it while you're working around. Read the Bible. Know the Bible. That's our only authority in life. It isn't our opinions. It isn't our illustrations. It isn't our books. It's what God said. So know what it says. And that's all Paul's. And then he says, be ready in season out. So you can always be ready. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. The only way that you can do these things is if you have acknowledged what the absolutes are. You can't do these things and have everyone right. You can't reprove, rebuke, and exhort and have everybody right all the time. So as a leader, he's being told, Timothy, here's what you have to do, whether you like it or not. Now, nobody likes doing this, by the way. I don't think anyone likes this assignment. But see, when you understand the depravity of man, you understand at the beginning what Jesus said, you go, no, I get it. I'm trying to help people not live there. Back to Matthew. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, talk about a curveball. He starts going, blessed are those. Those people are spiritually prosperous who are depraved. And they know it. They're the ones that can be spiritually prosperous. And the whole group's going, I was feeling good about myself this morning. Well, you'll feel better about yourself when you understand the mercy and the grace of God and you respond to it. Because you're going to walk around going, wow, God, you love me. This is incredible. Now your day's great. But you can't get there without understanding your depravity. So, sorry, that's the truth. And see, that's why the truth is so hard. Because, I don't know, sometimes I think our, our, our teaching has been boiled down to 20 minutes. How do you teach this right? You know, you can come across and just tell people, you're bums. You know, it's not what you want to do. You've got to have a context for people to understand. Blessed are those who mourn. Today, I, I don't know how you can read the headlines and not be a mourner. When we think of mourning, we, we always think of, you know, uh, what Matthew's going through. And, and it is. That's mourning. That, that we should mourn. I don't know if you've heard me say it much, but I say it a lot when I teach. Is if you're going to love much, you're going to hurt much. There is no way to separate the two. And, and those who get it, those who understand it, they're okay. Because what happens is, blessed are those who mourn, comma, 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 for they shall be comforted. See, there is no possible way to be comforted until you mourn. Mourn. Admit what's wrong and not feel good about it. Yeah, but I want people to feel good about everything. There's nothing good about a child being abused. There's nothing good about that. And we can't change it until we say that, until we understand it, until we live it, and say that's not acceptable. It breaks my heart. This morning I was reading news headlines. I said, okay, God, what headlines are there today that I should let bother me? 
You see, one of the, the weird things in our culture is I find we don't want to ever let things bother us. We want them resolved. It's somebody else's problem. This is your problem, your problem, your problem, not my problem. What if it is our problem? It's man's problem. And we're part of mankind. We're, we're part of that. So it's our problem. It should bother us that sin destroys lives. It should bother us that people are separated from God. It should bother us. If it doesn't bother us, we'll never be comforted ourselves. I read this. Today, Billie Jean King, you know, she was married to Larry King at the time. That's where the King name came from. Yeah, Billie Jean King married to Larry King. She got an abortion, and she was her case was being used for the Supreme Court thing up now. And what they were claiming is, Abortion should be legal because Billie Jean King got pregnant when they were just starting the Women's Tennis Association, and she was critical to the starting of women's professional tennis. Therefore, they should have aborted that baby, and they did. I'm telling you, that should break your heart that anyone thinks that killing a baby so we could start a business is right. Do you know that this is, there are people that presented this idea to the Supreme Court as a reason for abortion. So we could start the Women's Tennis Association. It should break our hearts. Today I read about a group of men who approached a woman in England with a tremendous amount of cash in their hand as she walked her daughter out of school and offered to buy her daughter. The article went on to say this is a normal occurrence in certain parts of England. There are guys out there wanting to buy little children to abuse them. How can anybody, anybody think that's right? Today, I read about the Biden administration believing that Iran will not scale back production of nuclear weapons. Even though it went on to say Iran's been clear that they plan on using them against Israel. Today I read that the U.S. Congress and Senate were passing bills to raise our debt ceiling again, but they can't seem to get along on anything else. Just spending more money. They say these are minor things. What breaks your heart and why? I I think it's, it's an important question for all of us to ask. What is it that breaks my heart and why? And you might say, well, I put a guard up. My heart is never broken anymore. I pity you. Now, you might show it differently. I, you know, I, I probably cry more in front of people and alone. I'm a Swede guy. I just sit there, stare out the window. So you might show it in different ways, I understand. But what is it that bothers you? Is it only things that uh, affect you? I must say, I'm not affected by Billie Jean King's news, personally. I'm not affected by this group in England trying to buy kids. You know, on a regular basis, more in the last few years, I've heard of young people who have been, um, their lives are such a challenge because of the abuse they went through at home. We're doing this foster family connecting. You know, I mean, it's, it's a dart. Does that break your heart? The kids have to live that way? 
honestly, I, I don't understand because I had a great dad and mom. <laughs> you know, how can anyone do that? I don't understand how that happens. How, that's not right. Yeah, it's, it's easy to just look down at them and say, that's terrible. But the answer for them, just like the nation, is God and, and understanding God's love and responding to it. That's the answer. It isn't a lecture on their morals because that's not going to change anything. The answer is having people who love God and love them and act in accordance with that. You know, I I think one of the important things for the church to be able to do is be able to mourn so that we can be comforted. We, We need to be able to call sin, sin. And God rushes into our hearts and he comforts us because he's the only comfort available. Until you mourn, you don't understand that. You think there's comfort in a in a bottle or in, 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 in taking a vacation or maybe doing this or doing that, there's no comfort there. The comfort comes from God, and the only way to do that is honestly mourn the evil that we see and that we're a part of, to mourn it, to be able to say this isn't right. I love, uh, as you know, I've talked often about Nehemiah and his prayer. As soon as he saw the problem, as soon as Nehemiah saw the problem, Verse 4 in Nehemiah 1, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I read that and thought, wow, this guy? Really? His position was such? Well, this didn't affect him. This didn't affect him a bit. Why did he let it affect him? He could have gone and, and just done his job. He could have said, those people over there, they need help. You're right. Those people over there need help. That doesn't bother you? Now, can, can we all do what Nehemiah did? I don't think so. That's not the point. The point is to begin to understand what bothers us. And maybe at times in life to ask, why doesn't that bother me? Why doesn't that bother me? Maybe it should. You say, well, I... I thought we're supposed to live lives of peace. Oh, it comes when you let that bother you. Then God can deliver the peace. That passes all understanding. As as I was talking to Matthew as he goes to a funeral. I said, Matthew, enjoy your tears, man. You love your family. This, This mourning, this sadness will drive you to your father, your heavenly father. He knows how to deliver the peace. I don't. He does. Go to him. But you can't get there any other avenue than acknowledging the problem. And the problem is that in this life, we get separated from those we love because of sin. Ah, notice my disposition changes when I think about it. But one day, Jesus declares victory. That's over. Forever. That's why it's important to tell people who he is. To show. But when you mourn, you put yourself in a position where you're saying, I can't do anything about this. You're right. You can't do anything about that. People will die. The only way that's not going to happen is if Jesus returns. And we all get out of here together. Then, then that's good. But most likely, all of us will watch those we love, one by one, leave this planet. Unless we lead the way. Then they'll have to watch That's the way life is. And you know what? 
If you love people, you mourn. There's no way around it. And it's a sweet morning because God meets you in the middle of it, saying, yes, once again, this morning is showing you are, you're helpless. You cannot fix this on your own, can you? No. But they, 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 I fixed it. You take a look at your dad in that coffin. It's not there. It's not there. Oh, yeah, you fixed it. You fixed it. Right. Oh, you're separated for a while. Sorry, can't do anything about that. And every time you're in pain in the future, I want you to remember I fixed it. That's all I want you to remember. And when I do, boom, peace. Wouldn't it be tragic not to mourn and not see that? Not to say I cared enough and loved enough that when this individual dies, I do nothing. Nah, those who mourn, they get it. They get the seriousness of sin. They get the consequences of sin. They get it. And when they get it, I'll be there. You'll see, I'll be there. Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He just kept saying, God, not right. This bothers me. Eventually, God used, you read the book of Nehemiah, he used him in such a significant way. Why? Because the right thing bothered him. It wasn't his job that bothered him. It wasn't his assignment from the king that bothered him. It wasn't any of that stuff that bothered him. And, and again, this isn't about Nehemiah, but you can go in and study and see the times of Nehemiah, etc. The thing that bothered him was that God was not being honored with this. And he used his own time and his effort and his money and his, he went and tried to fix it. God used him. Before you know it, 50 some days later, the wall's built again. One guy. Amazing. You know, that's why I love uh, talking with Mike about foster family. Can that, seems like such a big task. Let's fix this problem. Well, we've got the first part covered. We're bothered by it. <laughs> I don't know all the plans yet, though. I don't know what God's going to do about that. I just know that. Okay, the bother isn't something we want to push away. How many times do you think, both in the church or in families, or in, we try and get people to just be okay, just be okay? Well, maybe we ought to say, yeah, that should bother you. And realize that as they go through that, God meets them. I don't want to take away from anybody the opportunity to sit alone with God and feel helpless. I don't want to take that away. That's too precious to take away. And it doesn't happen on a regular basis. It, it happens rarely, it seems. Yet every day, the breath you have, the heart that beats today, because God has you here. That could stop right now. You have no control over it if it does. He does. We're not in charge of that much stuff. To be thankful. Nehemiah was bothered by the right thing. I was reading in uh, Biblical Illustrator, which is one of my favorite books to just read commentary on. It said the character, we do not say piety is never clothed in the garb of sorrow. Because the peace that passes understanding usually is clothed in sorrow. We see it. 
We understand it. We understand what's happened. We also understand what Jesus, what God did about it. And that's where the hope comes. There are people that are hopeless today. They're hopeless. Why? They don't know God. When they have a problem in their life, they can't be sad about it because not being sad is their life goal. So they have to do something about that. They have to crack a joke. Get a drink. Take some drugs. Go out and party. Do something to forget about it. I was talking to a lady. She was struggling with her alcoholism. and said, I don't know. I just at night I have to, in order to sleep, I have to drink. And I said, well, what does that do for you? It makes me forget for a while. So your alcohol is taking the place of God, hasn't it? She just stared at me. Maybe you're not supposed to forget. Maybe that's supposed to remind you of God's mercy and his grace and his peace and his comfort. Maybe you're robbing him of that joy, of teaching you something. I just challenge you. You go to Matthew 5, he starts with, depravity, then he says, blessed are those who mourn. It's like, those are two starters, man. You look at him and go, wow. Seems like those are two things that we in America want to avoid. At all costs. And I would think that we as a church in America, general church in general, have that same mind frame. We want to avoid these two things. And God's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what you avoid. Can you imagine, you know, some of the nicknames of God, I probably shouldn't call them nicknames, but Jesus, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Remember, in my younger life, I read that, why? God. Can you imagine being Jesus on earth and seeing every human being through the lens of what they could be and seeing how far they are from it? And knowing that you created them in order to reach their potential? I'm talking, do you know how discouraging it must have been to be Jesus? In one way. I say that in context, not because it was discouraging to be Jesus. But whenever you see someone, you realize the thing that's keeping them from what they could be is this thing called sin. And first it should break our hearts, not make us judgmental. How many young people have come to me and said, I don't know, this might shock you, and they tell me something terrible about what they did. And then they find I'm not shocked. And they go, well, I thought you would, you know, throw me out of camp right away. I said, for sinning? There's a big list there. I want to talk about what it's doing to you. Let's talk about what it can do to you to understand this. It's a whole different idea than saying you shouldn't be involved in this. Now, if it's something where they're going to hurt somebody else, sure, there's, there's other things you've got to do. But there aren't really any acceptable sins. No matter what we say, no matter what America says, there aren't any acceptable ones, not even greed. Yet somehow we don't get sorry about that. We think even somehow the people that use their money to Find comfort in this world is a good thing. Maybe we should do it. Now, you think that Jesus would switch gears here a little bit 
and go into another theme that might be a little more popular. If you were a speechwriter for Jesus in this day and age, in his day, this is not the speech you would probably write. I can't imagine a politician ever in the United States of America ever saying these things. It wouldn't work. I, I can't imagine the people of his day thinking, okay, this, this is how you start a movement, Jesus, by telling people that they need to be spiritually depraved, and then you need to tell people that the second thing is that they need to be people who mourn. So far, you don't have all these recruits going, yeah, yeah, I'm in. I am so in. I am a depraved mourner. I'd be worried about you if that's what you did. But it, it goes on. I guess it gets a little better. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. <laughs> and not that much better. For they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. In the Weast translation, if you wonder how that's spelled, that's W-U-E-S-T if you ever looked that up. And for some online Bibles, that's just part of it free. Some, it isn't. Um, but it says, spiritually prosperous are those who are meek because they themselves, they themselves, there's an emphasis here, they themselves shall inherit the earth. You know what meek really, you can look at meek and, and you can say, okay, the word mild goes with it. It, it does. It does. But in this sense, what's really being said here is a life of contentment. Those who have a life of contentment are meek people. The life of contentment is different than just being mild. You're mild because you're content. In other words, there's things you you can't change in life. As a a former uh, school teacher... One of the things I used to notice, uh, obviously, were I got all the kids who had a little bit of an abundance of energy in my class. And the parents would come and say, I don't know, you know, it was when ADHD thing was really kicking into gear and they wanted to drug all these kids. And I would always ask the parents not to drug them. Why? It's your class. They're nuts. Well, that's your definition. But just because that kid's hanging from the light doesn't mean anything. And each time I would look at that parent, I would say, you know what? I just want to tell you something. Your son or daughter could be very gifted. I don't think it's a mistake that they have this kind of energy. If you could direct the energy, can you imagine what they would be capable of? How are you going to do that in a classroom? You know, myself as a teacher, I think the classroom setting is not perfect for every child. It's not perfect for every kid to sit there and get lectured at it and told to be quiet. That isn't going to work personality-wise, I don't think. There are some, they're very gifted at that. I, I would say Linda, my wife here, she probably sat and took notes when she was a kid. I didn't. I threw spitballs. It, you know what I found as I got older was my problem was that when you say something... I got it, and then I got bored. And my mind went into a hundred different directions. And when I started to teach, I realized the kid throwing a spitball at me is in a hundred different directions because he got what I said, and I have to say it again for the group over here or the group over here or something, and now I've lost them. I, so now I've got to start figuring, I've got to do something different for that kid. 
You see, what's interesting is you and I were created all differently. We, we all, the, you, know, you go through the Bible, we're told we're, body, we're the body of Christ, got knuckles, got knees, got hips. Man, that's different. Uh, one of the things we do as a culture is we, we say we don't want any differences, but that's really not the case. We really want superiority. You know, we say, let's erase all the differences. You know, we, no, we want superiority. We don't want equality. Honestly, down deep, you read the psychologist, read, nobody actually wants equality. They want a little bit of an edge. So they want their body part to be a little more important than another one. But God teaches through the Bible that that isn't the case. That every single human that he ever created, including all those that got killed in the womb, they were gifted. I don't know how many parents I've talked to have unloaded and said, you know what, my child, my, he has this problem, that problem. I think, oh man, you just got to find their purpose in life. What do you mean? I just don't. Do your best not to drug them out of it. Do your best to find what it is and channel it. Why? Because God made them. He knows what to do. He didn't give them a personality and go, oh, what did I do? He didn't do that. Now, how does other influencers of, of culture measure in? Probably greatly. And, and there are other things, I'm sure, that, that affect children's behavior. I'm sure of that. But beyond controlling the things in life that we can control, what would happen if we looked at life and we thought, you know, God, I'm not going to compare my life to somebody else's. I'm going to be content with where you placed me. And I'm going to learn how you want to use me. When we started camp um, year-round many years ago, the one thing that I kept talking to God about early in the years was there's no possible way I know what I'm doing, God. Got all these CCI conferences and everybody knew what they were doing. They were planned and they all figured they all knew what they were doing. We didn't have any big backers. We were 700,000 in debt. I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I, what I didn't hear, God saying, I know. I said, God, you know I'm only in charge because my dad was. You know that. Yeah, I know. I put you in that family. Eventually, what I understood was he put me in that family. He gave me the gifts he needed me to have for a very specific task in life to do. I need to relax and enjoy it. That's contentment. Then you become mild. You have to defend your, your worth, your value. You ever see somebody trying to defend their worth? You didn't treat me nice enough. You didn't do that. You see people doing that, they're not happy. I know that from the various deaths that I've seen in my family, that on the next day the sun comes up. We all go about our business. The world goes about their business. God places us here and he develops us into the people that we should be. And then, he says, I'm done with you. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of saints. Notice, not precious in days. 
Immediately, God goes, why aren't they precious in your sight? Oh, this is about you again. You'll miss them. Remember I fixed it? Come. Content with what God has given me in life. Believe it or not, I'm not a writer. I I was the guy, remember, who was throwing the spitballs. Yet, God's allowed me to write. Why? Because he just allowed it. Put the circumstances in the right place. Did the right thing. Let me marry the right person. Could you do it on your own? No. Should you have been able to? No, I'm fine with who I am. Thank you. Do you know how wonderful it is to be content in life? This is a hard one to figure out because so often we think it means don't try and improve. That's not what it means. If you understood what I said earlier about those rooms, one of the things this Harvard guy talked about was the importance of continually working at your craft, whatever it is, you continue to work at it. So if you were to see me today, I, when I write, I write in this app called Grammarly, and I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to learn how to write right so that I can learn the grammar and do it right the first time. I'm 65 years old, why am I doing this? Because I should learn. Life is a process of learning. I'm not saying that I, I think the English rules are sane. I think they're insane. I'm not saying that I'm ever going to get it. But I think God can use somebody who can't spell and, and who doesn't care for grammar in the first place to do things outside his comfort zone. And realize that then you have to depend on other people to get it done. You know how we all fight depending on anybody else? Well, it goes nowhere without this person helping you, without that person, without that person, without that person. Why? Because we're a body. You go nowhere without the other parts. And when you get that, you get this mildness about you. You realize, okay. Do you know that nobody's a threat then? Anybody that comes into your life, they're not going to threat, threaten taking away what God's given to you. So you look at them, you think they're extremely talented. When my dad was still alive and he would talk to me, and you, I, I heard him talk to people about this, and he talked to me about it. It's like, oh, don't you, you're afraid? You've got all these young people speaking and doing things. Aren't you afraid they're going to take over one day? And he goes, I hope they do. He said, the greatest thing that you can do is develop people into who they are, and then get out of their way and become their fan. Yeah, but what if they take from you? There's plenty to do. They take from you, this will open up. They take from that, this will open up. There's plenty to do. That isn't my issue. The issue is let's develop leaders in a way where we encourage them. And if they're better at what we do than what we do, let them do it. That was a mild answer. Rather than having a judgment, no, they shouldn't do it, because it's me. It's what? No, he's the guy that said there's principles, there's methods. He used to come over to the chapel when we were singing songs off cassette tapes and wait outside because he couldn't stand the music. I don't know what he'd be doing today. But he didn't like the music back then that we were moving to. But you know, he 
blessed us with his presence anyway. He came. He didn't criticize us. He realized those words are okay. I wouldn't use them. I wouldn't use that music. But he understood the difference between having a principle and having a method. That's because he was mild. You know, I never... uh, and I really saw my dad, I, I shouldn't say I saw him lose his cool once in all my life. I don't know how many guys can say that about their dads. I never saw him lose it just once. And here's when I saw it. We were in California at the Rose Bowl Parade. And there was a couple drunk guys behind us. And he started a fight. And there were two guys taking another guy's head and bashing it against the sidewalk. And I saw my dad get up and run through the crowd and spread people out and grab those guys and throw them against the wall. When I was down, I was a kid. I was 10 years old. I said, Dad, it's okay, son. You would have killed that kid. Somebody had to do something other than cheer. And he came back and sat with us for a parade. The only time I ever saw him lose his cool. I'm not sure he shouldn't have lost his cool at that moment. But as a kid, that was the only time I saw it. And I saw it on behalf of somebody he didn't even know. He came back all full of blood and watched the parade. That's a meek person right there. I didn't want to lose it. When I look back on it, he grew up in the inner city. There were plenty of fights when he was a kid. I didn't realize how good of a fighter he could have been. Because I never saw it. If you're really a good fighter, you know how to take care of yourself, should people know that you're good? Maybe you shouldn't be using it. Well, he did on that day, and that's the only day I ever saw it. He's the same guy who, when his brother died of a heart attack, his sister-in-law would not let him say anything at the funeral. I was calm. He's the same guy whose dad was an alcoholic who beat the kids. I never heard one bad word about my grandpa. He understood it was a problem with sin. He hopes he saw his dad. He would know now because some of his friends claim that his dad came to Christ before he died. He said, I don't know. But I never saw bitterness or anger. That's a meek person. They understood, why why did I grow up in the inner city of Chicago, have a dad who's an alcoholic who beat me? Why? Why? In the process, he met Art Warheim, he met Doc Latham, they mentored him, they started Awana. He took his two sisters and kept protecting them. His two sisters, they're both alive. I have said often when I saw them years ago, my dad was their dad. He took them away from their dad because of his beatings. One of them went to Mexico and translated the Bible into the Chinatec language. One of them became a pastor's wife and a school teacher. My dad was just thankful. He never got to rescue his older brother, he said. A meek person, never angry. Always looking for that opportunity to share with those 
who abused him. That's meekness at its best. I, you know what? I, I, I could feel anger and I could feel, you know, all kinds of stuff. He didn't. The scripture is, is, is complete with references to meekness, calls it different things. Romans 14, 7. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. Okay, that's somebody who's content right there. If I live, I'm God. If I die, I'm God. You're content either way. What would a lack of contentment bring me? Anxious moments? It wouldn't solve anything. It wouldn't change anything. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. <laughs> the Apostle Paul is saying, you do know that God is not the God of the dead, physically dead that are living now yet, but he's, he's God. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The, the meek know this. They know that their life, they're accountable in their life and how they live. So you live as one who's going to be held accountable. If you don't know that, you don't live that way. The meek don't live for themselves because it's not about them. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. See, God made us to die. And one of the fun things to do if you've got kids, especially you, you show them that nothing stays alive unless something dies. Something has to die to give life. And down the road, that's such an important spiritual principle that God put in everything in creation. You go in the woods, things are rotting, things have died. That's what gives them nutrients. You go in the lake, pull up some muck, all dead stuff. <laughs> Smells terrible, dead stuff. Feed in the lake. You want to eat, you say, I'm a vegetarian. Well, then you kill the lettuce, lettuce plant or something. <laughs> you kill something to stay alive. That's the way God made it. There's no way to do it any other way. And God says, by the way, for you to live, you need to die. That's how life is given. Die to your interests. Die to your desires. Die. And you'll find that in that you live. See, that's the cool part. There's a great abundance. I, I really saw that when we lived in Chicago and my dad would have us rake the leaves off the lawn and we'd fertilize. Took all the fertilizer off and put false fertilizer on. Never fertilize the woods. It just kind of takes care of itself. You know, you say, well, the trees, you know, it does take care of itself. Things die. You don't have piles of dead deer out there. You, you don't, it, it goes into the soil somewhere and it's used. It's the way God made it. It's interesting, when I taught school, that was one of the principles when I was, I was always teaching science. I would always jump and teach science if they let me. And um, I made the principle, no one's alive. I used to, I mean, no one's alive unless there's uh, something dying to keep them alive. And I would tell them, if you can tell me something nutritious, not something chemical, but if you can tell me something of food value that you eat that was not alive first, I'll give you an A in science the whole year. So all, all year, these guys came after me, trying to get that A in science. Nobody ever found something. 
they made some things up. I still don't know if Twinkies are really alive or, you know, or dead. I, I don't want to get into the McDonald's hamburger debate on whether that was ever a real animal or anything. So uh, that, that I'm not getting into. But it was interesting because it, it was really just a principle I was trying to share with them, thinking, down the road, God, you could use somebody to instill in these kids the truth. I don't know, it may not be me. But what was really fun was always saying, I'm a, you know, here's what I want to do. As a school teacher, I can't preach the gospel. But I can set the stage, God, for future. I could do that. And so I would always be teaching them things. Then I would be quiet. And uh, taught them that the Supreme Court isn't supreme. And I just went on. Because this was a very Jewish school, so they were anti-abortion. And I said, is the Supreme Court right about this abortion thing? And they no. I said, because they're not supreme. No. He said, I'm leaving it there. We'll go. I don't know. Now these kids are all adults somewhere. I wonder if they ever remember that the Supreme Court isn't supreme. But there is something that is. I think whatever our job is in life, we can figure ways that God could use us and just be available to him. And we can be content that what we do, what God's given us, our assignment in life, it's what it should be. And therefore, we're meek in what we do. We don't have to make things happen. I do not have to make sure that everybody's okay in the world. I don't have to do that. I have to respond the way that God made me to what I understand, and that in itself causes meekness to take place. First Corinthians four sixteen to eleven to sixteen. To pre- this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Apostle Paul is saying, "You know, life can be rough, but I'm in that room. The door is shut. I'm not coming out. God's going to use this suffering. He's going to use it for something." Then he goes on. This seventh verse: "Blessed are the merciful." The merciful. What will happen to the merciful? They're going to receive mercy. The merciful. Remember I hear somebody talking, I mean, there's so much news out there, and somebody hurt me, and what are they, like, blessed are the merciful. I think there's a lot of times in life where I'm glad something didn't happen that could have happened and how that would alter my life. No, nobody really plans on doing things to destroy their life. Blessed are the merciful. We says, spiritually prosperous are those who are merciful because they themselves shall be the objects of mercy. God understands when you're merciful. He understands when you're looking at mercy, by the way, is not giving somebody what they deserve. That's what mercy is. First of all, I don't know that I'm in a position to know what other people actually deserve. So I'm not sure I should be telling you you should get this because that's what you deserve. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I do think that of myself at times because I think, you know what, I, I could eat all those donuts and I probably deserve a heart attack and, you know, that kind of thing. But when I don't have a heart attack, then it's like, okay, maybe there was some mercy given on the bloodstream today. I have no idea. But again, you go back and you see how this is all tied at the beginning of the chapter, we're talking about the spiritually 
depraved. We understand we're depraved. And so we're already amazed by being, having God's mercy toward us. We're not going to get what we deserve. So then in our lives, what we do is we look at others and we think, I don't want you to get what you deserve either. One of the worst things that somebody could actually say is, um, I just want what I deserve. It's like, Ugh. I know in my head sometimes, and even aloud in students especially, I go, I wouldn't hope for that. I, I, I don't think any of us should hope that we get what we deserve in life. I, I don't think anyone should ask that. Why? Because of the first part of the chapter, where we understand that we're spiritually depraved. You, you don't want what you deserve, you want God's mercy. And once you're amazed by God's mercy, now we get to be merciful to other people. You know, when someone does something they shouldn't do, and they don't know God, how do we expect them not to do different than that? They're just acting in accordance with what they actually know. The answer is not to be judgmental to them. If you're among people who don't know Jesus, they're going to act like they don't know Jesus? That's how they act. Do I like it? Do I... I don't like it. I don't think I have to prove it. I'm just saying. That's how they act. It's not wishing that somebody gets what they deserve. Those who understand mercy, they themselves, they themselves. What's interesting in the East is, is they expand a little bit by saying they themselves. In other words, all of these characteristics actually benefit the individual who has them. Not... You know, you could be thinking, I want to benefit everyone else. That's fine. These characteristics are really about others. Which, how you treat others and see others, but it really benefits you doing it right. And you say, well, I'll just do it then. No, see, that's not the right way to do it. It's not the religious thing. I did this, I did this, I did this. Remember the disciples came to Jesus and said, how many times are you supposed to forgive somebody? Want that religious rule, please? How many times? Jesus They're talking to Jesus, who's the king of mercy. How many times has he forgiven each one of us? How many times will he forgive us? I don't know. Well, 1 John 1, 9 tells you, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I would claim that no matter how many times you sin. So it's a game then. It's between you and God. I would encourage you, just for your own sake, check out the wording in 1 John 1, 9. It says confess. It doesn't say feel sorry for your sins at that point. Confess it. Agree with God that it's wrong first. This passage talks about feeling bad about it. <laughs> and that's different. I think that takes some time sometimes. The illustration I've given often is I, I, I uh, yeah, I could eat those donuts. And then later... You know, I could think I shouldn't have ate those donuts. The trouble is I don't feel badly about it. I can still admit I shouldn't have eaten them. I just don't feel badly about it at all. They say down the road you might feel badly about it. I might. I haven't got there yet. So for now, I just need to say no to them. But if I'm waiting for myself to really feel badly about eating a donut, I haven't got there yet. I just know I shouldn't eat more than one every once in a while. You see, I I need to understand that so I can live right. 
I need to understand that people who make mistakes, the first goal is that they know that it's a mistake somehow. And then, in time, they can see what it does to them and say, the mourning part can take over. I'm sorry about that. I'm sad about that can take over. But when you start demanding that people be sad first for their sin, somehow, then what we're doing is putting it on them, saying, well, you're not sad enough yet. You're not really sad enough yet. Really? I don't know how you'd be sad enough. The very first responsibility, really, is that we, we confess our sin to God, and we say it's wrong, we agree with God, and then we allow God to work in our hearts and get us to the point where we're even sorry for those actions. In other words, we still listen to God because he's God. We still admit the problem. And eventually we'll see the, dem- the, the, the devastation of the problem, perhaps. The eighth verse, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or spiritually prosperous are those who are pure in the sphere of the heart, because they themselves, they themselves again, shall see God. Talking about our motives. I don't know how many times I've sat and I've thought and I've said to God, you know, I think I'm, God, am I doing this for the right reason? Because <laughs> I think I am. And then I can always hear God say, you always think you are. (laughs) The pure in heart. Somebody comes to me and just says, I don't know. You know, I just don't experience God. I don't, I think of this verse. Because here we're told the pure in heart, they're going to see God. They're going to understand who God is because of the purity of their heart. The purity of the heart, I want to do something for Ethan, for Ethan's sake, not for Dave's. I want to honor God because I'm meant to do that and I love him and I'm amazed by his mercy. That's, that's a good motive. Do I always want to do that? No, sometimes I just don't want to get in trouble. Okay, well, that's good. Talk about it with God. Eventually, the goal in life, at least for me, is eventually to do the right things with the right motive. But if I'm not going to do it with the right motive, I think I should do the right things. Because, again, that's part of understanding how we develop. I can confess my sin. That's saying I shouldn't have done that. But then eventually I want to have the right motive to not even want to be around it. Because of the danger it presents in the things. And I think that can take time. The pure in heart, they're going to see God. Action versus motive. Pure in heart deals with why we do the things in life that we do, that's all. And I I think that often, one one of the prayers that you can ask God is that he reveal your heart to yourself, as David did. Because anything you do, you've already justified in your head, you already have a reason for it, it's a good reason. Your motive is good already, probably. But what if you ask God to reveal your motives to you? Search me, oh God. Know my heart. I, I want to know that my motives are what they should be. Because I promise you, I don't get up in the morning and think, God, give me a lousy motive so I can go do this. I, if I know I have a bad motive, I should deal with it. So I don't think I do. So God has to reveal it in time. 
Are we capable of doing what's right and having the wrong motive? Absolutely. Everyone here is capable of that. Are any of us capable of judging someone else's heart in the motive area? No. That's the judging part. See, we're not to judge one another, and that has to do with us. That's God's business. You're not judging somebody if they're doing something outright. If they say, I'm going to go murder this person, they get a gun out, you go, that's wrong. That's not judgment. They say they're going to have an affair with somebody. That's wrong. That's not a judgment. The judgment is when you start getting into the why you did it. And since we can't even figure out the why in our own life, why we did it, how can we ever be in a position to understand the why in somebody else's life, why they do it? Here's what I've learned through the years, though. When you assign a motive to somebody, it's because you would have done that with that motive. And when you think about that, that humbles you right away. So let's say you bought uh, a brand new, I don't know, truck or something. And I look at you and go, self-centered. What I'm doing is saying, if I bought that truck, that's why I would do it. I'm self-centered. See, but I'm trying to put that on you so I feel better about me. But honestly, I just revealed me to me. Because I can't really know your motive. I don't, I don't know what your motive is, honestly. You can tell me anything you want, and, and it could be your motive. It could be that you're lying to yourself. I'm not going to be in a position to know. So God says, why don't you stay out of that arena totally? Stay out of the judgment arena. That's not your job. What is my job? Not the judgment part. I can ask questions and walk away. I, I can ask questions trying to get them to probe themselves, but with God, I guess. Honestly, though, the thing I should do is probably be happy for a guy getting a new truck. And say, I'm happy for you. Good for you. Yeah, but immediately I think, why not good for me? See, that reveals personal motives. I don't know how many times we see something happen to somebody else and we think, oh, why not me? You know, this guy, some guy walked and said, you want a million dollars? Handed them to me. Why not me? I, I, why not me? I don't know. Don't worry about it. Not yours to be concerned about. It shows that what you're doing is thinking of yourself. I remember years ago I was praying, saying, God, you know, just give us the resources. I'll use them all for you. And as I got older, I said, you know, God, I know why I prayed that way. Because I never believed you'd give me millions of dollars. And you know how easy it is to tell you what I would use the millions of dollars for when I'm convinced I'll never see it? Pretty easy. I would be so noble. And God's probably going, oh, I should just give it to you. So you can see that you wouldn't be noble. Oh, I would be. Oh, Dave. Since, I don't know when, I came to God and said, you know, God, It'd be best to keep that stuff away from me. I'm really content where I'm at now. I don't want that decision. And now I'm thinking, oh, no. He's got a scheme up there. He's going to do something to show me my... Or maybe I actually mean it. God, I don't know what I'm talking about half the time, do I? Because I think this is what I would respond. 
I think that's how I would respond. Guy goes, I know how you would respond. Do you want me to show you? Eh. So here I am already hesitating, going, I don't know. Because I'm not sh- I, I kind of like who I made me to be already. Yeah, maybe that's the problem, Dave. Maybe I've got to show you who you are. And I want you to understand, before I show you who you are, I still love you. I always have. Because while you were sinful, I sent my son Jesus. While you were totally depraved, I sent him for you. I understand. So you thinking that you have to measure up. That's nice. But remember, you don't. But I still love you. So why don't you enjoy that? Enjoy that. And I think that's really what we have to think about. I'm going to let you read the rest of these verses in 5 and 6 and 7 as you get chances. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is the one that needs to teach you. I just want to encourage us as a staff. Let's, you know, we started the school year with John the Baptist saying, he must increase, I must decrease. The, the year coming up, let's be people who read and respond to Jesus' message in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There were those people. Let God reveal this to you. Read it many times. Different versions. Just keep reading it. Keep thinking about it. Keep discussing what it means. We're in crazy times. I really, I've been predicting for a while that the sky's going to fall somewhere. I don't know what that means exactly. But I don't know how we stay in debt like we are, how we're so, so proud of our sin in media. How, I don't know how you keep that up and God allows it. I just don't know how you do all that. And immediately I go back to you and say, it's your issue, I guess. It's not mine. I know my issue today is to get up and to live in a way that represents you no matter what happens. It's not to control circumstances, not to be right. It's, it's to love you, to love the people around me. That's my job today. I'll go do that. And you take care of the world events and history. And that's all I want us to do as a staff. Read this and, and be responsive to God and his spirit as he speaks to us about this. Because it goes on and talks about we're light, we're salt. We're, you know, and those are great things to con- constantly ponder in our head. Am I light? Am I salt? Do I live in that manner? There's going to be thousands and thousands of young people that come through here again. God willing, and we're still open. And we need to somehow introduce them to Christ. And begin their journeys along their life where they can understand the stuff that Jesus is talking about here in chapters 5, 6, and 7. When he started, that's what he taught. And then, it's a lifetime of trying to figure out what he said exactly, because Satan, I promise you, is on the opposite side of all these. Don't be meek. Don't mourn. That's silly. Don't do this. Satan might be on the other side of it somehow. Because anything that's right, Satan opposes. So you're not going to feel like doing any of that. The culture certainly isn't. A culture, godless culture isn't. So let's join the quest of of living in those chapters and just asking God to speak to our hearts. And be people who, if he chooses to use Silver Birch Ranch in any way, shape, or form to help 
shape the world in which we live, let him do it. If not, that's his choice. We still do what we're supposed to do. There will be wars, spiritual wars, they fight. And I'm, I'm praying that each of you will be a part of that warfare, whatever way God places you to be a part of it. And in the future, hopefully he'll say, you know that you guys down there, you, you gave an example of what I wanted to use for my kingdom work. Thank you. <coughs> Us as a group, as a body. Because a lot of times you think God says, well done, my good and faithful servant to an individual. And I think he does. He won't lie, by the way, but I think he does. I think possibly he might say to a group, too, because of the body principle. Well done, group. Well done. I want to be that group. We need to be that group. There he goes, well done. That's all I was looking for is people who love me and, you know, did things so that people could understand I love them. And you did. That's all I ask. Thank you. And we see down the road. Close with the idea, if you haven't read the book by um, Age, name just went through my head. He owns a couple of Chick-fil-A franchises, but he came to camp here as a kid. And his life just fell apart. In fact, when he went home, he had to get on a, they put him on a bus to go to a different state. His parents moved out and moved to another place and told us to put him on a Greyhound and send him there. Went home. On the bus ride home, he says he put his trust in Christ. He heard about it here at camp. He didn't. It was a week of high school camp. When he went home, he made a deal with his parents. You got to send me there next year. And they did. The whole summer, he came up and worked. He's one of those kids running around working. One of those kids. Didn't really know anything. Told me a bunch of stories when we came up here of how dumb things he did. But if you read his book, he goes back to his time here. That's what changed his life. He became a believer. He became one now. He's active in many ministries, owns a couple of Chick-fil-A's. Is, is really being used of God in leadership. We might have some of those books later on. I don't know. What is his name again? Art Greeno. Thank you. And all I had to do is say it aloud and got it. Arthur Greeno is his name. It's, it's interesting. Got a book in the mail one day, turned it to the back, and it said, so Bird's hands on it. I thought, who is this guy? Then he told me of all the times I interacted with him. I thought, uh-oh. I don't remember him. I would love to feel more significant about this. I don't remember him. And then I thought of the thousands of kids who go through here. I'm not sure I'm going to remember him. But God's using their experience here, hopefully, for something of his plan. And that should both excite us and humble us at the same time. So our responsibility, let's be the example, let's be the people that God will use. And then watch them. Let's be at the horses, whether it be buildings, or whether it be selling T-shirts. Let's watch God use the place and be actively looking for how he wants to use us. Let's pray. Well, again, thank you for our time together. I thank you for the pause in our busy schedules. I thank you for the pause in December here where we can kind of reload things and take a look at things and adjust ourselves for what's to come. I pray that you send the right people here, that you protect this place, 
that you give us a clear stand. Father, that you protect us against the evil, the ones that, that want to destroy your name, that you protect us for. We can't protect ourselves, but you can. Give us many opportunities to represent you. Defeat the evil one, Satan himself. You're the only one that can, and your, your very word will keep him away from these grounds. So we ask you to speak on, on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.